Thank you for listening to Tapping Into the Human, a podcast on addiction, recovery, and mental health, brought to you by The Albertus Project. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. Every week, you'll hear powerful stories from people about their journey with recovery and be inspired by individuals and organizations that are leading the charge in decreasing the stigma surrounding mental health and addiction. Welcome to today's episode of Tapping Into the Human, where we are joined by Dr. Jeff Raperta, who is an addiction medicine and family medicine doctor up in Illinois. I actually found Dr. Raperta online via YouTube and have learned so much more about addiction and specifically medication-assisted treatment from his awesome videos on YouTube. How did you start? Like, did you always know you wanted to be a doctor when you were a kid? When did you figure out about addiction medicine? Like, what made you want to go into practicing addiction medicine? Um, I don't know that I honestly did want to practice addiction <laughs> medicine. Um, I was one of the kids, though, who probably from the time I was in like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, if you'd asked me what, to, what I wanted to do when I grew up, it was always to to be a doctor. Um, and it was very um, sort of juvenile, simplistic motivation of I really enjoyed studying science. Okay. But at the same time, I kind of couldn't imagine working in a lab all yeah. the time or doing that. So the, the perfect mix of science and getting to talk to people every day for me was uh, was being a doctor. And honestly, fast forward 30 years, I don't know that my motivations have changed a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's still just sort of sort of that, um, yeah, that that story. So, so I'm kind of a classic small town family doctor, a little bit of a, uh, little bit of a dying breed. Um, I still do obstetrics, I practice in a small town. Um, before the Affordable Care Act was passed, a lot of the patients who I saw were on subsidized health care and didn't have insurance, right. or they didn't have any access to specialists. So I had to kind of do everything. Off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the, the story of me getting into the treatment of addiction kind of starts in about 2010. So my, uh, my medical training career very much follows the path of sort of the last big um, opiate addiction wave in the United States. Yeah. For anybody who's not well versed in that, basically we started seeing opiate prescriptions and therefore opiate um, overdoses, opiate deaths, opiate addictions starting to rise right in around the year 2000, which is when I um, started medical school. And then they kind of peaked around 2011. So th this is kind of, I went through medical school 2000 to 2004. 2004 to 2007, I was in my residency and could see that something screwy was happening, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. just a lot more people addicted to opiates, seeking opiates, coming in for prescriptions for opiates, seeing more overdoses with it. And then I moved from Northern Illinois, where I did my training to Southern Illinois, where there's a much bigger problem with opiate addiction. And kind of three years into practice, I realized that th th there was a problem locally. You know, a lot of doctors had prescribing habits that weren't very good, just giving out too many opiates. A lot of patients coming and seeing me as the new doctor in town, hoping I'll give them a prescription for hydrocodone, oxycodone. And I had a few people who came to me and said, I'm addicted. What can you do to help? Mm. And tragically, the answer was kind of nothing. Yeah. Um, I One, I didn't have the skills, but you know, you can get around that as a doctor because you can figure out, hey, there's places I can refer this person, but there mm -hmm. wasn't really anywhere to send anybody. So as I was kind of getting this sort of foundering hopeless sense, we're in the year about 2010 right now. Um, one of my partners, uh, Dr. Aaron Newcomb, um, called me, may maybe one of the more impactful phone calls I've had in my life in 2010. 
and said, I want to start an addiction treatment program to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, Are you interested in helping? Because I really don't want to do this alone. And I said, "Um, yep. What's buprenorphine? (laughs) (laughs) Yep, sure. Tie me up, but tell me what it is. Yeah. So 2010, I had no idea what it was or how much it would uh, impact my my practice, impact my, my professional life and personal life, I guess, for that matter. Um, so yeah, 2010, um, I went and at the time, um, you had to do eight hours of in-person training to get a buprenorphine license. So my wife and I, uh, had the terrible experience of having to fly out to, uh, Palm Springs, California, because in the whole of the United States in that year, there were two conferences where you could get certified. Really? So back in the day that it wasn't like, it was a really thing you had to like go to a physical place to get your waiver from the DEA in order for you to be able to prescribe. Yeah. There were some hybrids where you could do part online, part not, but not really anybody was offering it. Now it's a lot easier than that now. So that needs being met. But at the time, um, and I was on a little bit of a time crunch with sort of the timeline that Dr. Newtham and I set up for starting the program. Um, I had a choice of going to uh, Baltimore, Maryland in the winter or Palm Springs in the middle of the summer. So I could either be very hot or very cold. Went to Palm Springs, took my eight hour class and uh, October of 2011, it took until we finally got our program up and, up and running. And um, I, I don't know, I cringe a little back when I think out when I first started, um, you know, I, I, I was not an expert in addiction. I still don't know if I'm an expert in addiction. Um, but you know, I kind of made it up as I went and I mean, my resources, I had Dr. Newcomb, who was also new at this eight miles down the road in one of our, one of my sister clinics who I could call for help. And I had a, a lovely man, a child psychiatrist in Connecticut who had taught the class where I took buprenorphine. He was kind enough to give me his email address. I would email and call him with questions. And I wore that poor guy out the first six months of uh, prescribing buprenorphine, but you know, eventually figured out. Fast forward um, 11 years, I've got about 200 people in my program right now. Wow. I've had over the years, probably in the neighborhood of four to 500 people who have kind of kind of come and gone. And um, Dr. Newcomb and I have expanded our program from just the two of us prescribing to, I think there are six or seven of us now, um, just through being able to recruit other, other physicians. Um, and probably the, the biggest lesson I've learned is, I mean, when I started, Word got out in the community. So I live in a population center in Southern Illinois. That's probably about 250,000 people, but it's spread out kind of along about a 40 mile um, highway corridor. So okay. it functions kind of like a small to mid-sized city. And that, that area is uh, small enough that um, people with addiction issues tend to know each other because you gotta have a, a hookup, you know? <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta know somebody to be able to get, your, to get your opiates. So word got out that Dr. Newcomb and I were doing this and people found me. And I had no sense at all of uh, sort of founding a healthcare system or some sort of system to treat addiction. It was honestly for several years, just I was at my clinic and if you needed to help, you'd come to find me. And that was it. And that's changed a lot over the past few years, realizing that, oh, if I honestly want to make a dent in this problem in the area where I live, I need to get involved with the court system. I need to get involved with the law enforcement system. I need to get a little more involved with our local mental health professionals, with the counselors. Not that not that I wasn't doing that, but have just become much more aware of how important those relationships are and sort of having a unified front. Um, yeah. As, as we go along. Right. Um, yeah, it's been, it, and it, this, um, so I still run a family practice clinic, meaning I still see patients with hypertension, with diabetes. I still take care of pregnant patients for a long time. I was the only doctor in the area who spoke 
Spanish. Um, wow. So you were yeah, kind so, of quasi like, hey, you need this? I'm your guy. Yeah, let's figure yeah. it out. So kind of uh, did that for a while. So I still have all that going on. But I mean, the, um, you know, prescribing buprenorphine to patients, probably not quite a quarter of my practice. Um, so it's a, it's a big, yeah, it's a, it's a big, big chunk, chunk of what of I what do, who do. I am. And I was going to say, um, I learned a lot from your sort of video. You did a couple different videos on buprenorphine and sort of the science of addiction for those who haven't seen it. And I will make sure I link it. Can you give sort of a one minute sort of pitch? Really? What is buprenorphine? Why is it used and why is it important? Ooh, one minute. Okay. So however, or uh, however much you want, I just <laughs> want to make you repeat your 15 minute pitch. That was awesome on YouTube. Yeah, so so let me say this, I guess, right? I, I I don't really consider myself to be an expert in any sort of addiction outside of opiates. Um, you know, so I, I realize that some people listening out there probably have some experience in other forms of addiction. But when when I talk, I tend to think of opiate addiction, um, get some experience with methamphetamine addiction, see people struggling with alcoholism. Cocaine is not a massive problem where I live. I see a little bit of that. But anyway. Uh, buprenorphine is um, the single most effective treatment for opiate addiction. I think that's the simplest way to say it. Um, the, the It's a part of this wide um, sort of blanket term called medication-assistant treatment, or MAT, which basically implies that you're going to prescribe somebody a medication to help them um, fight their opiate addiction. Um, th there's a few medications that are um, successful at this. And I, the, the hard part in terms of doing good science and studying addiction is you say, well, what's success when you prescribe a, a medication? Right. You know, if we prescribe a medication to somebody with heart disease, we measure success as they didn't have a heart attack or they didn't die. Right. <laughs> so in opiate addiction, it's a little bit harder to say exactly how good a medication is because it depends on your measure of success. Is it the person continued to abuse opiates, but they did less than them? The person one uh, second, Dr. Perta, you're cutting out. I don't know if oh, you're further from. Sorry, there we How's go. That? Much better. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. I think it shifted. Okay, so, um, part of the problem in measuring what do you consider a success when we're talking about opiate addiction is success only if somebody is totally abstinent from all illicit drugs. Is success if they use less of the drug? Is success if we lower their overdose rate? Is success if we lower their, their risk of going to jail? Um, it turns out buprenorphine does all those things <laughs> um, if you prescribe it to somebody. So, I mean, it, it can be a little bit hard for somebody not in the addiction medicine um, treatment world to realize that sometimes success is honestly just making sure somebody doesn't overdose and die. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I have different goals for different patients of mine. Um, so the goal for some of my patients is honestly, let's just make sure you don't die. For right now i want you to Which not I have to tell you is at the end of the day the most important goal right like at the <laughs> yes. end of the day with everything that's happening and when i was trying to figure out like how can we actually sort of stop this pandemic going on with um with opioids and medication assisted treatment is a very very large part of that answer it's sort of the saving grace and that what i think is is so difficult i'm curious your thoughts on this is it's so difficult for uh, a lot of doctors like uh i know there was a waiver at one point that you had to take training now i think mm -hmm. you just have to declare it to the dea i mean it sounds crazy that you know it's not like someone has to have a limit for how many patients they can prescribe opioids to yet there's a limit on how many uh patients you can prescribe medication assistant assisted treatment to what is sort of your thoughts on on all of that and the policy barriers and how difficult it is for doctors to to help 
Yeah, it's ineffective. So the, the background there for a long time, if somebody got a waiver, if a healthcare provider, a physician got a waiver, it's called. Um, so, you know, the education that I had to go through to be able to prescribe buprenorphine for the first year. So back in 2011, I was allowed to prescribe to 30 people. Wow. And I had a massive waiting list of people waiting to see me. And I would get people who would um, kind of sneak in the side door and, you know, beg you know, find me in the parking lot, find me in the community. Which you know, is I awful. This, they just it want is. Yeah. It's terrible. And then um, after a year, you could expand to 100 people, um, which I did. And those spots went in a hurry. But I was always keeping track. And there'd be these really hard decisions that I'd have to come to about who I was going to um, keep in treatment or not. Yeah. You know, so if I have a patient disappear for three months and not come in, do I say, well, I'm going to kick you out of the program because I have this one other guy who's waiting and I think I can help him more. Do I give this other person a chance? Or, you know, if I get somebody who, you know, has sort of taken their meds, but then they continue to abuse heroin heavily and they're rude to my staff and they're not making their appointments and they're rude to the pharmacist, do I keep them in or do I kick them out and give somebody else a chance? And I mean, that those are very hard ethical decisions, right? you know, because it's basically rationing healthcare. And it's something um, you shouldn't have to be in a position to make at the end of the day. Th those were, I mean, probably in my career, the most heart wrenching decisions. And there were, there were times that I didn't feel good about it, but that I would honestly discharge people from the program just to say, I, I don't think you are benefiting from this as much as somebody else might. And I, I hate it. I flipping hated that. Um, yeah. Now life, life got a little easier a few years back because by that point, Dr. Newcomb and I had expanded the program so that we had some other providers. So even if I didn't have space in my program, I could get them in with somebody else or, um, you know, the, the numbers also went up. So I'm now allowed to prescribe up to 275 people. And between expanded access in my area and that number, you know, I've hovered in the neighborhood of 200 or so for a year or more. Um, so I, ha I have access. I don't turn anybody away at this point. I don't have to do that. You know, I don't have to choose. Yeah, Life's no, a little easier. Yeah, but it, it was, it, it's still a headache. And even the 275 number doesn't really necessarily make it. Now, now ha having said that, though, I mean, the, the, the buprenorphine works so much better than anything else that's out there, by mm -hmm. the way. So to, to jump back to this, buprenorphine, if we talk about medication-assisted treatment, there's a few things that work. Buprenorphine works, methadone works, and um, naloxone injections work. Buprenorphine probably works best. Naloxone treatments probably have the second highest success rate, methadone the third highest. Cold turkey has a success rate of about 1%. So yeah. the odds of getting somebody to stop opiates uh, without any kind of medication is 1% per year. You basically have a higher risk of overdosing and dying than you do of quitting. Right cold turkey without meds. And uh, I, I can talk about why, why that's so difficult here in a, in a little while. But yeah, li life's a little easier now because there is access. But I mean, when, when the success rate is still high and the number of people who are addicted who get on buprenorphine and they just say they feel normal, it, it creates some demand for the drug because there's just nothing else like it out there that you can take and expect to, to feel quite so, so again, normal. I don't know normal. if I want to say Right. Good. Yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, that did also create the opportunity for some healthcare providers to be a little, a little shady with it, you know, to have run like cash clinics that charge a whole lot of money to come in. Um, you know, and there have been plenty of cases of doctors, you know, doing that and sort of profiteering um, off of this. So, I mean, it did have to be regulated a little bit. It is still a control, you know, buprenorphine is, is technically an opiate. So it is still a controlled substance. So there was some fear from the 
from the feds that maybe it would be abused, but that hasn't really come to uh, fruition. Yeah, thank but you. I, yeah, I, I, but the, those restrictions honestly also scared a lot of doctors away. So, if, and that's where we're at right now, where you have so many doctors who can prescribe it, and I can go online and Samsha's website and try to find a doctor who prescribes buprenorphine, especially in rural areas. You might be driving 30, 40 miles to find someone who actually prescribes it. Yeah, and I, I have some people who drive that far to see me. Wow. Um, for, for so I also, um, so I said I do obstetrics for a long time. I was the only guy for about 60 or 80 miles in any direction who both prescribed buprenorphine and delivered babies. So I had women coming from all over the place to see me, mm. um, with opiate addiction issues. And I, I had no clue what I was doing at the start, <laughs> <laughs> you know, made, made it up as I go, learned, learned as much as I could by, by, um, eating. But yeah, that's, uh, that's a, and his question for you is buprenorphine safe it's a better alternative for someone who's dealing with addiction and pregnant rather than methadone is that a fair statement buprenorphine is safer or is methadone safer no i think well buprenorphine is a safer drug in general okay so yeah just, just because the risk of overdose with buprenorphine isn't really there um and the risk of side effects is a little bit lower so if somebody is taking the medication exactly as prescribed mm -hmm. you know staying away from illicit drugs, buprenorphine and methadone are essentially equal in terms of outcomes. Methadone, methadone was recommended for a long time as being the um, go-to treatment for pregnant women, but that's only because there was a lot more research on methadone than there was on buprenorphine, kind of the devil we know as opposed to yeah. the devil we don't. Right. Um, you know, methadone is really heavily restricted. You know, you have to go to a, a clinic every, every day. day to get it. Yeah, I, I, on the one hand, I get it. On the other hand, I, I don't. Met methadone. That be my question for you. You're a doctor who prescribes buprenorphine, so someone can come once a month and get their prescription, you know, in a doctor's office. Yeah. Methadone, that's not a thing. It, is it, because I, I heard what you said. It's like, on one side, I get it, one side, I don't. Is there merit to it? Because it seems kind of crazy to me to make people travel 30 miles to go every single day. It ruins your family life and your work balance and all that. It does. The the. The problem with methadone, though, is that the what's called the half-life, which essentially means how long does methadone last in the body, mm -hmm. is exceedingly variable from one person to another. Okay. So it has this thing called inducible metabolism, and it's almost impossible to predict. And in some people, methadone can stick around in their body for months even. So, And, and the, the problem is methadone is an opiate. So you could possibly have somebody who, you know, if you gave them a two-week prescription of methadone, and they decide they wanna to try to get high from it. They take all their methadone at once and maybe they don't get high or anything happens, but then say a week and a half later, they decide they're gonna you know, shoot up heroin. Mm. That's additive on top of the methadone they took a week and a half ago. So methadone causes a lot of accidental overdoses yeah. um, for, that, for that purpose. Um, you know, People not necessarily trying to get high off of it, but people who are kind of mixing it with other things. So, I mean, methadone is not the safest drug in the world. It, um, you know, it can cause this thing called QT syndrome where it prolongs um, the electrical signals traveling through your heart. You know, it can be, it, it just kind of adds to your risk of overdose if you're taking other medications on top of it. Buprenorphine doesn't do either of those things. So right. a little bit safer. Um, not, and on the flip side, you know, <laughs> for a long time, methadone was the best thing there was to try to get off, get off opiates. So I don't, I don't know. You know, I feel like the restrictions are probably a little stronger than they should be. 
but I would be nervous about sending people home with a month's worth of methadone at the same Interesting. time. Yeah, no, that, that's good to know from a doctor's perspective, because, you know, I, I see the lineups of uh, someone just sent me in Arizona, a picture of them having to drive 45 minutes to their methadone clinic every single day. And they're, the doctor prescribing it is virtual. So there's just like an iPad in the middle of the room. So the mm -hmm. doctor gets to be home to prescribe and this person has to go there. And I was like, that sounds kind of crazy and a little bit unfair. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know what the right balance is. Clearly, I think there should be something done, um, but it's interesting and, and good to know that buprenorphine is sort of the safer alternative option and you don't have to go every single day. It's a once a month thing. Yeah. So, so uh, let, let me, I, I think probably one thing I can offer is a, a brief explanation on why buprenorphine works so well here. Please. Um, cause, cause that's a major gap that I get when I sort of, when I sort of talk to people, I guess. Um, so a brief history of buprenorphine. It was developed at a lab in England, in Hull, right outside of uh, right outside of London, kind of in the late 60s. And it was supposed to be a replacement for morphine. So the biochemist who um, synthesized it said, hey, we're going to try to find some sort of alternative to morphine. So they manufactured this molecule knowing that it would act like an opiate. But then what they found was, OK, it, it turns on the same receptors in the body. It has the same action as morphine. But it wasn't very good for the treatment of acute pain because it has a three to five day half-life, which means basically somebody has to be on the medication for five days at a consistent dose for it to reach full effect. And two, it, it's maybe it only turns on those receptors, the same proteins that morphine activates in the body at about 40%. So if you come in and you've been in a car accident and you broke your leg and they tell you, hey, we're going to give you this medication, but you got to be on it for five days to reach full effect. Five days, you're and <laughs> yeah, we do have something that's two and a half times as strong and that's going to act within 20 minutes, but we're going to hold that back from you. So they, they initially kind of thought that it was a failure. Um, but then, you know, fast forward about 10 years or so to the late 70s, there were already some reports that it was a useful drug for heroin addiction. So like, like so many things, though, in the history of medicine and science, if you study this, it took 20 years after the initial smart people said, hey, this works for this, for uh, sort of the, the whole community, scientific community to get on board. And of course, somebody else got the credit. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it took until the early 2000s until it was recognized that buprenorphine works. So if, if you want to understand why this works, though, you kind of have to understand pain and why we have pain to begin with. If I'm hammering a nail and I miss and I whack my thumb with a hammer, I'm probably going to say a couple of bad words. and. Um, then I'm going to get this wave of pain. And we have pain for a reason, right? Pain is so you don't stick your hand on a hot stove and fry your hand to a crisp and get an infection and die. Pain is your body's way of saying, hey, dummy, stop what you're doing. You're ruining your body. Um, but, you know, no pain lasts forever because we have some natural painkillers in our body. So that's why if I do accidentally hammer my thumb, I get a wave of pain and then the pain kind of melts down to nothing. Um, it's because my body has just released this natural wave of, of opioids. Um, an opioid is anything that activates this certain type of receptor in our body. And I'll talk about one in particular called a mu receptor. A receptor is just any um, protein that sticks halfway outside a cell, halfway inside a cell. Mu receptors sit on nerve cells that connect your body to your brain, basically. Um, if you activate a mu receptor, you get two things that kind of happen. One is the nerves calm down so they don't transmit quite so many pain signals. And then two, it activates this other pathway that releases dopamine, which is your body's feel-good chemical. Dopamine is a big deal. Um, anytime we feel happy, if you see somebody you love, if you have sex, if your sports team wins a championship, if you eat a food that you really like, you get this wave of dopamine. So dopamine, just in um, speaking in terms of like evolution and human survival, 
is a big deal. We're sort of programmed to seek dopamine because it means you've had a good meal or you have, um, you know, procreated to try to carry on the species. So anybody that understands sort of um, evolution and how we continue on as a species is going to get that, why, why we kind of need that. So an opiate is anything that you stick in your body that turns on the same receptors as those natural painkillers. Um, so an opiate would be like hydrocodone, oxycodone, heroin, morphine, codeine, um, all of those. So they, they turn on um, the receptors in your body that cause a release of dopamine, which makes you happy, gets you high, but then two also knocks down um, the pain response. Interestingly, people who are more likely to get addicted to opiates get a massive dopamine response when they take an opiate and don't get quite as much of the um, you know, turning down of the pain response. That's why if you talk to different people who have been prescribed, say, hydrocodone, which is Norco or Vicodin for pain, you'll talk to some people and they're like, I was buzzing around the room. I had all this energy. I couldn't sit still. Those people had a massive burst of dopamine. Then you talk to other people and be like, I was sleepy and that stuff right. knocked me out. Those people didn't get as much of the dopamine response. They just had the nerve signal. And they felt felt dopey. So what, what buprenorphine does, though, oh, other part of the addicted brain, I guess, and understanding this, and I think this is important because a lot of times we hear, what, why? Somebody's addicted. Why don't they just quit? I've heard this from people in law enforcement positions, from people who really should know better, who are like, well, I don't understand. Why don't they why don't they just quit? They're doing heroin. Why don't they just stop? They see what it's doing to their life. They should just stop. It's just that easy, right? No, because one, we are really programmed to go after dopamine. But then two, you get this kind of sad thing that happens if somebody is using opiates over and over again, which is they quit making natural painkillers in their body. And they also um, will quit making dopamine, right? Unless they give their body an opiate. And that part is kind of depressing because you can get to where the only time you feel happy or content or have any sense of joy whatsoever in your life is if you give your body an opiate. So, I mean, you, you can kind of, I keep trying to find a kind way to say this, but it, it can kind of ruin your brain after a while. Yeah. You, know, yeah, just, yeah. you don't have the, the natural responses unless you're giving it an, an opiate. So, imagine you're taking the substance and at first you're getting high from it because you're getting this massive dopamine kick. But then after a while you're using the substance just to feel normal, because if you don't, you don't get the dopamine, but then two, you've been artificially turning down all these nerve signals in your body. And if you pull the opiate away, all of a sudden all these nerves go haywire because they're not used to not being turned down by the opiates. And that's what withdrawal looks like. So you get these massive body pains, you get watery eyes, you get this really bad, um, snotty nose, saliva, diarrhea, stomach cramps. It's ridiculously uncomfortable and hard to make it through. And even if somebody is strong enough to make it through the first five or six days of opiate withdrawal, you still have body aches, fatigue, and this terrible restless leg syndrome that won't go away for months, if not years, if you've been addicted long enough. And that is really, really, really hard to overcome. So back to buprenorphine. So here's what buprenorphine does that the other meds don't do. Buprenorphine lasts, like I said, about five days in the body, if not and it only turns on those same receptors as morphine, hydrocodone, hydrocodone, but it does it at about 40%, but it's steady. If somebody shoots up heroin, heroin's in and out of their body in four, six hours. So they got to forever be looking for more heroin. Hydrocodone, six, eight hours. Oxycodone, six, eight hours. Um, codeine, four, six hours. So people who are taking those and are addicted to them are forever having to feed those things into their body or they're risking withdrawal and they're risking having those bad feelings. So it's always, where's the next pill coming from? Where's my next shot coming from? Where's my next hit coming from? Buprenorphine, instead of getting this massive wave of activity in the body, you get this slow steady. It's 40%, but it doesn't go up or down. It stays there because the drug is slow in and slow out. 
And so that makes a person feel normal. But then the other side is if you take any more than about two or three doses a day, it doesn't really do anything extra in the body. Um, there, we only have so many receptors for this. So if you take a bunch of buprenorphine in a day, say somebody decides they're going to try to get high from it, taking any more than three or four pills or strips at a time, it doesn't do anything extra. Um, when I first started doing this, I had a patient who decided she was going to try to get high off of her buprenorphine and she took 60 in a day. Oh and she said all it did was tick her off because she didn't feel anything after the first three. <laughs> so oh she my just, God. Yeah. She was probably like, what is going on here? Yeah. She just and got taken. explain the science to her like, hey, after three, it reads a ceiling effect and it's not going to do anything. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, the it's one of those things that like you read about, but until you actually talk to somebody who's had that experience, you kind of go, oh, I can actually trust that. <laughs> yeah, and then um, buprenorphine also, because it's using up the same receptor spots that like morphine, heroin, oxycodone, oxycodone, it just so happens buprenorphine sticks to those receptors better than anything else. So if somebody does buprenorphine and then, um, you know, does heroin on top of it, it turns out the heroin actually can't do anything because the buprenorphine has taken up all the receptor spots. Um, buprenorphine will kick the heroin out, but heroin won't kick the buprenorphine out. So if somebody has taken their buprenorphine like they're supposed to, and they relapse, they abuse, they decide they're going to use at a party or something, they're not going to overdose and die. Um, so there's just, and it's, you know, it's a happy accident <laughs> that, that it lasts so long and that it sticks to these receptors so well, but there's just nothing else out there that's quite like it. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I'm exactly, I was going to say a happy accident uh, where they were like trying to think of some painkiller and it's a painkiller, but in a very different way. And it's been, it's been really effective. Um, I was going to say, Dr. Perta, like, what has it been like um, to know that you've helped so many people? I mean, I know you had a wait list and you're now helping, you know, over 200 patients. Um, their lives have probably significantly changed from having to do whatever they needed to, to obtain drugs and use to now leading a very probably normal life or at least getting to that spot. So how has it been for you seeing sort of that change in your patients? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the area where I live, you, you can't hide. So, I mean, I live in the community with these people, you know, the town where I live only has about 8,000 people. So, I mean, these are not just, patients necessarily you know i know i know the families of these people i know yeah. their kids i go to I go to church with them my kids go to to school with their nieces their nephews their kids sometimes um so i mean I, i'm it's pretty rare to not have a connection with somebody who's connected to somebody who's in my program or or has been um i i think it's probably the single most rewarding thing i've done in medicine you know um no, nobody with diabetes ever cries on my shoulder and thanks me profusely for uh, for having made their diabetes better, you know. And um, I don't know. I, I like. I mean, I'm human, you know. I got a bit of, a little bit of an ego. <laughs> I like when uh, I, I like being thanked. I'm always a little uncomfortable when I get the uh, I get a sloppy thank you cry every so often. I mean, that's kind of nice and a little embarrassing at the same time because I realize one. I mean, I I don't necessarily think I have any answer that nobody else has. You know, it's it's it was kind of the um, little bit of naivety, honestly, starting the program, not knowing what I was getting into, but then a little bit of of willingness to learn and having um, some very good people at the corporation where I work who were willing to sort of take the leap um, with Dr. Newcomb and I, and you know, kind of kind of get this rolling. So it's it's incredibly incredibly rewarding. But I mean, I I don't I don't have a hundred percent success rate, you know, either. I mean, I've had 
multiple patients over the years have fallen away from the program, overdosed, died. Yeah. Um, you know, those will, those will, maybe they'll stop haunting me someday, but that day hasn't, hasn't happened yet. And I mean, um, you know, the, the, the struggle with prescribing buprenorphine is so what the, what the national research says, and I would say that this is pretty well how things go in my own practice. Um, about a third of people that come in pretty well stop using illicit drugs within a week of starting the program and they do beautifully and they put their lives back together and the chaos goes away. They get jobs, they mend family, um, you know, they mend broken family relationships and those are absolutely beautiful. And I mean, I, I, um, I see tons of those patients who just do well and they're still on the medication, you know, 10 years later and they come in and we chat for three minutes about their medication. You know, I write their refill and then how's life? Did you watch the football game last weekend? How's your kid doing? Yeah. You know, they, they become, uh, we know each other. <laughs> we like each other, either that or they pretend to like me. So that they, uh, so I'll continue to write their scripts. So those third of people are a wonderful experience. You get another third of people who stay mostly clean, um, you know, and I, I, the word clean always gets a, uh, well, it gets a gets a bad name, but all my patients use that. I can't help but drop that word sometimes because that's still sort of the street word. But who uh, you know generally avoid illicit drugs, but still struggle a little bit. And those are probably the ones that give me the most amount of grief because it always just feels like they just need to sort of get over the hump, but just can't quite get there. Right. And in those in those people, it's a little bit more about kind of harm reduction and um, mm -hmm. let's, let's keep you away from illicit drugs as much as possible, keep you out of jail, and keep you out of the morgue in the meantime. And those are the third that the probably give me the most grief because you always wonder, you know, is there something else that we can do to sort of push you over the hump into, you know, being totally free and clear of illicit drugs and really getting your, your life back together. And then another third, honestly, who come in probably just aren't ready <laughs> for, for sobriety or, um, or the buprenorphine just isn't the right choice for them. Um, and those people will generally kind of fall away on their own. Um, so there's a little bit of a, a rotating door there you know some people come in don't do well and kind of fall away and those i mean i have some acceptance that i'm not going to be able to help everybody so so you know those those happen and that's okay and they go so i don't know any uh it, it, how does it feel to help you it feels it feels good but i mean you don't have to practice medicine for too long before it will humble you and say hey you've you've helped some but you sure couldn't help everybody you know right right no no understood um, and I was going to say, my last question for you is what, what is sort of your piece of advice? Like, how do we help encourage other doctors to sort of take up the charge, um, you know, get their waiver, start prescribing buprenorphine, get a little bit of educated, because as you said, you know, talked about earlier, there's certainly a stigma um, surrounding it and there's not enough doctors who are signed up and who are in someone's area to be able to prescribe. What could we do to encourage those people um, to kind of come into this? I think the requirement for a waiver really needs to go away. Um, I mean, you don't have to have a waiver to prescribe massive amounts of opiates. Exactly. So, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense to me that we still have these restrictions on prescribing buprenorphine, but not on prescribing hydrocodone, morphine, oxycodone, those um, those things. So that would be step one. Um, you know, uh, it, it also just needs to be a bigger part of medical education. And I mean, programs are getting there, but slowly, you know, so, so I think the medical education community has just been a little bit slow to get to educating people about this. Right. If, um, you know, to, to throw, I guess, one one last number in there, you know, the, the U.S. in terms of life expectancy among developed countries, we're really not that good. We're, we're sort of at the sort of at the bottom of the pack. Um, but that's mostly because of 
four things. If you take these four things out, all of a sudden, I think we jumped to third in the world in terms of life expectancy. Um, car accidents, we just drive a lot more than other countries do. Gun violence, suicides, and drug overdose deaths. Right. So, you know, as a, as a physician in practice, I don't know that I really have much of a role in terms of reducing car accidents, gun violence, um, you know, so th those two things, I honestly, I think those are some other professions problem, <laughs> right? Not that I don't think they're a problem, but yeah. that, that's somebody else's deal. Yeah. yeah, but but suicides and overdose deaths, you know, I think if we, we need to frame this to more healthcare providers to say that, look, these are two things that make America exceptional in a bad way. And um, your our profession can play a major role in trying to bring us back to the to the mean and in terms of reducing those things. And I, I don't know, I feel some uh, I, I feel some moral obligation, I guess, to be a part of that solution and not to say that is somebody else's problem. Right. It's like, I, no, I, that's my sort of thing. And yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you because, you know, I think education is a huge piece, right? The more you understand, the less likely you're to have, you know, wrong beliefs or to hold stigmatized beliefs. That's certainly for me not understanding that. Um, you know, addiction isn't necessarily a choice. It's, you know, it's genetic, it's environmental, it's not as easy as, you know, there's there's actual science behind it. Um, so I, I do agree. I think education is a huge piece. And part of that is um, the legislation and the waivers that are making it very difficult for uh, doctors to want to put in the time. I think uh, during the pandemic, President Biden like turned the eight hours. I don't think you have to do the eight hours of training, but you still have to fill out a form Correct. Doctors have to fill enough forms. Like, why are we going to try to do another thing and not encourage people? So it, it is at least it's getting better anyway. So it's trending in the right direction. So there's a little bit of hope there. And lest anybody think there's no hope, um, the the last every year there's this massive conference on um, opiate addiction, and I'm blanking on the name of the conference. The last one before the pandemic hit was in um, Atlanta back in I think April of 2019. And on this one particular afternoon, they invited three different congressmen um, and women to, to speak on the topic. And there were three Republicans, three Democrats, and from all over the political spectrum. <laughs> I mean, you had one exceedingly conservative congressman, one exceedingly liberal, and they, they probably didn't agree on much, right. people who spoke, I would say. But um, each one of them gave a very nuanced speech about what they thought needed to be done legislatively to um, improve the situation of, of opiates in America. And I didn't agree with everything everybody said, but it, it was nice to know that at least those six people <laughs> in our Congress were well-informed and had um, good intentions and plans that I would happily have gotten gotten on board with. So I kind of, um, that, that conference was a little bit of a watershed moment for me and made me say, okay, I need to approach heroin addiction and opiate addiction as a public health problem, not just necessarily something to do in my practice. But that was a, a big moment. So th there are some people out there who get it. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who think the answer is still just like, make punishment. And that's that's an idea whose time has come and gone. Yeah, because it just doesn't doesn't work. Um, exactly. So, but but yeah, so anybody out there who has lost hope with our legislators, yeah, we got a chunk of them who that's still their answer. We'll make the punishments harder. That's not going to work, guys. It doesn't work. It's never worked. It's not going to work. Give up. If that's your answer, I'm not interested really in anything exactly. else you have to say. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. 
You can find more episodes of Tapping Into the Human and resources about addiction and mental health by following The Albertus Project on social media, at Albertus Project and at www.albertusproject.org. Thank you.